Hello and welcome to the Top People podcast. I've known Liam Walker for 20 years through my brother-in-law, Bruce. Liam is a 42-year-old barrister. He's at Doughty Street Chambers in London, who define themselves as cutting-edge, committed to defending freedom and civil liberties. Liam specialises in heavyweight criminal law, representing people charged with the most serious offences including murder, terrorism, serious sexual offences and complex fraud. He takes the responsibility of all of this very seriously, as you'll hear. He's not the atypical barrister coming from a background where he was told he was stupid by teachers. He's a straight-talking, fit, self-doubting, dashing figure with a super sharp mind, a big smile and a big heart. He's married to Sam and they have two young children and in his spare time he competes in Ultra Challenge events, most recently the Lavaredo Ultra Endurance Trail in the Dolomites, which was nearly 80 miles of running and 5,500 metres of vertical ascent. He not only raises funds for the charity Help Refugees, but he's also opened up his own home to refugees and describes two of them coming to stay at the family home. We've only ever had snatch conversations in pubs and at family events with never enough time to talk, so I decided to bite the bullet and ask him to be interviewed for the first in this Inspiring People podcast series. Thankfully he agreed and he trucked over to Missing People HQ this summer. You can hear the general hum of the office in the background as we talked away about motivation and training, self-doubt and being overwhelmed by awful events around the world and achieving great things. I kicked off asking Liam about the crazy run he'd recently completed. It was supposed to be 76 miles but my Garmin said 85 so I'm taking 85. I'll take 85, that's so incredible. (laughs) And why did you do that? What inspired you to do that? I've run before when I was... Um, playing rugby, not literally, but you know, as part of my training. But I found that it helped me deal with stress, and it helped me to better um, compartmentalise issues that were going on with my job or whatever. And then I got injured um, doing the London Marathon, and I read a book um, which lots of people. Um, uh, who've read, uh, um, which is um, by a guy called Chris McDougall, which is about barefoot running. It's about a man who keeps getting injured uh, running, and it had ultra running in it. And so it got me into training more, and then I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll try an ultra marathon. For me, sport is, um, I think the Greeks, in, the Greeks invented sport and philosophy, and I think sport has a definite answer, whereas philosophy doesn't. With ultra running, you think, well, can I do that? And it's the self-doubt that you have about anything, whether that's your own, you know, whether that's your job, whether that's your relationship, whatever. But I think certainly the background that I come from um, is, you know, I was told by my teachers at school, you can't do that, or you're stupid. And you, so that self-fulfilling prophecy, you go, well, I'm not sure I can. My own personality was, up yours, yes, I can. And I would sort of struggle to achieve it. But then when you do... Ultra running, it's basically you just got to get there, and it's not for me. It's not about running fast, but it's just keeping going. And so the first one I did was 35 miles, and I remember getting over the finish line and feeling really, really emotional and going, "Well, I can do it," you know. And you realise actually the sort of the physical and the emotional start to blend, and then you think, "Well." What else can I do? What else can I do? And it translates in all aspects of your life. And then my wife and I have been quite involved with the refugee yeah. uh, crisis and fundraising. 
this is like a long way. So I'll, you know, if we can raise a bit of money, that would be good. So that's why I did it. And you've raised nearly £10,000, is that right? £10,970 with gift aid. There was an image of a boy in Greece, a child in Greece had been drowned. And David Cameron said that that was the wake up, like a wake up call, although subsequently went on to describe um, uh, um, refugees in Calais swarms. That had a profound effect on me, you know, particularly as a father. If you're dealing with things and you think there is something that I can do, you, you almost can become completely consumed in it. But lots of people feel helpless. Well, there is that. I, I thought, well, there's something I can do. And I actually went to King's Cross last week and uh, to see three boys who were um, brought to the UK that once their asylum um, applications had been processed. And like lots of people, I have a normal job and I sort of have a lot of stuff to do and I got there at 10 o'clock in the morning and I didn't come till through to 12 and I thought, oh, blimey, I've got to do some work. But you know, there's these, there are these situations in life where you, you know, something happens or there is a feeling and there were there the family members who were in the UK and they came through and you could feel there was this, you know, visceral, but that's the right word, you know, way in which and this emotion had been transmitted that they embraced and you went oh my god and it was difficult to comprehend that if you're um you're reading about it in the papers but these three boys you know they'd obviously been through real um heartache and danger and they were lonely and now they're with their family. Did you talk to them? Did you have a conversation with them or did you feel like you were no, an observant, slightly sort of, strange position? I suppose there was a voyeuristic aspect to, to, to it, but, you, you know, the, the, I was asked to go along because I'd raised money which helped come through, but I didn't really want to, you know, they didn't know who I was. And my wife and I, Sam, have had two refugees living in our house as well. And, um... And you've got children of your own, got, yeah. so how was that, having people um, there that you didn't know? It had its challenges, and what I think if you have any house guests, there are challenges. Ultimately, it was rewarding, and it was eye-opening. It was a good thing to do, and I don't think that it's for everyone, because I don't think people should feel as though if they did, you know, they've got a spare room in their house and they're not using it, then that makes them a bad person. Talk us through then the knock when they turn up and there's a knock at the door and they walk in. What what happens next? How how do you start a conversation? Um, what do you do? One was called Hikmar, and she was from Sudan, uh, from Darfur. The other one was Haider, and Haider was about sixty years old, and he's from Syria, from Aleppo. He had been a teacher in Aleppo. He's and it. He spoke little English, but um, we were able to translate and have people help us. But he was incredibly well turned out, you know, like he... I mean, he was always wearing the same clothes, the same jacket and all the rest of it, understandably. But, you know, he real this real pride in appearance. He was like your granddad, you know, like a... And he said, you know, he was 62 years old, 63 years old. He was coming to the end of his career. He had a house, he had a car... And he had a job as a teacher, and he'd had, you know, in a, you know, which was the most stable Middle Eastern Eastern country before the civil war there, and, um, you know, he had to start completely again. When you're confronted with personal stories of people, you can't really turn away. Some people do turn away, don't they? So 
some people listening to this would maybe have the view that we shouldn't be accepting people into the UK from other countries irrespective of what hap is what's happened that we, we're not economically able to support them that it's the wrong thing to do so what makes you different and have not just go and do an, an amazing ultra event and mm. raise £10,000 but actually open your door to people what's the difference in your thinking? If you don't want to do something you don't have to run 85 miles you don't have to do anything <laughs> that's you know. a relief there is so much going on in the world and I think with social media and the way in which the world is connected more now we can feel just guilt all the time and it's easier to focus on the bad things these bad things have always been happening we just we just haven't known about it and I think there is a process going on about how we filter the um these awful events because um, for our mental health to feel guilt and to feel helpless and to feel like we can't do anything is really difficult and some people do turn away because they feel um, as though they can't help and they can't do anything. It's an interesting point as, as a CEO of a charity where people support us financially and do a, events for the charity to raise money and sometimes we're unable to connect them with the people that they're supporting, which are families who are missing a loved one or somebody that's been missing and, and we've helped to bring back or reunite. Mm. How important was it for you to meet people who you'd helped with mm. fundraising? Would you have still carried on supporting that charity, that organisation, without that direct experience? Or was that changing... Uh, in some way to have that experience meeting them face to face at I, King's Cross I think I would have continued to um, support um, and, and I love it. your your quote in your fundraising kind of pitch to people about that love and compassion mm. and positivity and I'm not going to use the word mm. Trump I'm mm. going to yeah. use the word <laughs> overrides hatred and yeah. cynicism and negativity and in, in a world where we are overwhelmed, I think it's a really mm. important point with social media. Yeah. And people are really affected by it, and mm. people, certainly missing people, really um, touched and upset by things that happen in, in mm. a way that can make you feel overwhelmed. Mm. So to do something positive, and you talked about running it as a way of de-stressing and, and mm. putting things in perspective... When you were climbing some of the 5,000 metres of ascent in mm. Italy, did you have times where you doubted your ability to complete it? No. Was it about your self-belief, and you've talked about that a few times, that made you never doubt your ability to do that? Because some people listening to this would, would doubt their ability to be able to run a couple of miles. It's taken me a long time to get to the level that, that I have done. You know, I've trained for about four or five years to get to the point where my body was strong enough to be able to run those sorts of distances. And I actually... I probably only run one and up, one maybe two times a week. The rest of it is different types of training to just get my body strong, so that you can stand physically stand up for the 29 hours that I was running for. I'm quite a determined character. I my my background is that in various aspects of my life there have been I've been in very unsupportive environments. And you've you've been described as a barrister as eloquent and fearless mm. and unflappable. I'm interested in both the, well, all of that, but particularly the, the fearless part of it mm. because you're under some pressure, I would imagine, representing somebody mm. in court where their future life is dependent on mm. you being able to cope and lead that moment. It's always the question, how do you do what you do? You know, you know someone's guilty. And my answer is always... My job isn't to get someone off. My job is to represent them as their advocate. 
and there is um, my job is I am between the state and the individual and the state is a very powerful organisation with um, huge facilities available to it um, and the individual is not and I went into criminal law because I think there's real social value in it because basically the people that I represent generally are the poor uh, I do do private work much more so now I use that private work to augment my income so that I can represent people who otherwise wouldn't be represented. I think it's helped me coming from a less traditional background into law because I will say to a judge or a prosecutor, that's not right. And because I don't really ever, because I think to myself, well, I wasn't really expecting to be there. I sort of don't think that I've got anything to lose because there were people who um, had done terrible things and there were people who you thought perhaps hadn't done things and they were found guilty and they're the ones that stayed with you. But ultimately it's the it's jury that makes a decision whether someone is innocent or guilty but my job is to make sure that they get a fair trial. Because and when you walk into a courtroom, how, how do you feel in that moment and how do you cope with the pressure that you're under? particularly given that the other side have a, an interest in putting you under pressure and destabilising you and making you compromised in some way such that you're not able to do the best job for your client. I suffered from sort of self-doubt when I started um, because I d was in an environment which was very alien to me because the cliché of the Oxbridge, Eden Harrow, that's true. When you're confronted with people whose education is a lot better than you, and they know more than you. And as a result, and they've always, always been told that they um, will do well in life. And they have a certain confidence that you don't have. But I do you have self doubt now. Yeah, I think definitely. I'm driven by a fear of failure rather than a, a, a desire to succeed. And I use that fear of failure to make sure, and that's I stay up till two or three in the morning, making sure I know everything. And I've often thought that the amount of hours of preparation that people put into mm. key moments that nobody sees, nobody knows that you mm. sat there at two in the morning, is often one of the reasons why people succeed mm. and it, it took me a while to realise that a few years ago to put in, to put in the hours which helps you over the self-doubt. Mm. But in that moment when you're effectively on stage, mm. how do you stop the self-doubt creeping in? Because you can't let that happen in that moment, can you? What are you, what are you using psychologically in your mind um, alongside all the preparation you've done to get you through? When I started, um, it was just adrenaline and cortisol and working late night and working really, really hard and being obsessed with working and what's happened with my um, physical activity is that I, I neglected that completely and then that made me, I didn't have a balance and so my stress levels were increasing although you know I was finding that you know there was a correlation between the more work I put in the results were better. Now I, yeah. you can't control, in my job you can't control the minds of other people whether that's a jury or that's a magistrate or that's a high yeah. court judge, you can't do that and I think there's an acceptance I have an acceptance of letting go of things that I can't control, but I can control me, and so there is still a correlation. You know, if I didn't read the papers, I'm not going to do very well. So there has to be a balance between foregoing all of my family life and, and my health 
to do everything on a particular case and doing nothing. So somewhere in the middle is the right balance. You never quite know where that <laughs> is. So what have, I, what have I done? I think when I started, I was trying to be um, a barrister that I thought how barristers should be. I was hanging around with a lot of barristers and I was trying to, I suppose, a bit like Jack Nicholson, one flew over the cuckoo's list. I was trying to be like everyone else. And then I, I did a white-collar boxing thing and um, that was a real changing point in my life because my wife's mum sadly was was very ill and my mum was uh, my my wife was looking after her and I had a lot of time on my hands and so I was training down at a boxing club in Bermondsey called um, Fisher ABC and I was amongst these boys and I basically went in and they were like well, who's the old bloke because I was I think about 30 at the time 30 30 yeah about 30 41 and I realized that um, it didn't matter when I got into a boxing ring what, what job I was doing. But all, all I could do to gain the respect of them was to be the best trainer. And I was the fittest person in the gym. And as a result of being working as hard as I could, the trainer um, could see that I was a good influence. And he could say to the young lads who were 16, 17, he's 30, he's fitter than you just because he works harder than you. What I got out of that was um, I gained the respect of these lads, and I was able to, and I spent more time with them. And um, and if people didn't like me, I, then then that was all right, really. The the training point you get to to get to that level of fitness, mm -hmm. and you said you you four or five years worth of training. Mm. What's the difference between the sort of training you do and the sort of training I do and other people where they run for a few miles and think, oh, I've got a bit of a twinge, this is hurting, this is not mm. good, I'm really knackered now, it's a bit hot, mm. I, I've not eaten enough, I think i better stop. And the sort of training that you do where you push yourself into that kind of elite training mm. zone where you're feeling a lot of pain and that actually feels like a good thing. We live in a world now where we all sit down and they say that sitting down is the new smoking. If your muscles have atrophied because you've never been sporty at school or whatever you've got to start really slow and you don't have to be like running 85 miles so really the final question to ask you which women always get asked mm. and men never get asked yeah. is how do you manage to do all this with kids so you've got a pretty full-on job you're yeah. really well read yeah, yeah you train really hard you've talked about your wife and your kids and yeah. you've got all of that going on how the hell do you fit it all in um, I am really lucky that my wife is amazing and she's really supportive. Hope um, she's listening. Yeah. <laughs> um, I used to get up really early in the morning and I'd get up at half four on a Sunday and I'd get out of the house by five and I'm back by ten and then I'd meet the kids and, I, and that's it. That's hard. It's, it's a significant challenge. Paul Jones did that. Paul is the dad of April Jones who was abducted and murdered. Oh. And he is registered blind, and his sight got a lot worse after April was taken. Yeah. And he is a really fit guy. He runs up in the hills in Wales, around the back of his house. Yeah. as a way of coping. Yeah, yeah. And he said last year, you know, I'd like to do that cycle challenge, but there's no way I can do it on a bike because I'm partially sighted. Yeah. So we were like, there's got to be a way of you've been able to do this um, yeah. and so he hooked up with someone who and, and did the whole thing on a tandem unbelievable and that's great really so inspiring and there's a, there's a picture of us up there I, I'm there with my coat on and my handbag well they're all on the bikes yeah, with, yeah. The, with the cycling tops on and so for me 
I'd love to do that and I think probably a lot of people listening to this want to push themselves like you say it might yeah. be a 3k it might be a 10k might be a cycle challenge um, how to kind of start on that and I think as much as anything the message from this is the physical training as well as the mental strength I, th I think so but when I said that 35 mile one I did there was almost an epiphany it's like I can do that there are days where I just I don't want to go running or I don't want to do this, or you know, I don't want to read my brief, or don't beat yourself up, man. Yeah. You know, like don't you know hold yourself hostage to the expect the unrealistic expectations we put upon ourselves. You know, like I'm not an Olympian, um, but what I've found is that the human body can do things that you didn't think it could do.